Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes, profanity, and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. The brutal murder of a reclusive widow sparked one of the largest murder inquiries Liverpool had seen in years. After following numerous dead-end leads, the investigators turned their attention to a pair of petty thieves on the word of criminal informants. The case against them was purely circumstantial. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 40 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. The next instalment will be available next week, where you can hear part two in the next few days ad-free on They Walk Among Us Plus, exclusively available on Patreon or Apple Podcasts. Thomas Rimmer said goodbye to his wife and child before swinging his leg over his bike and cycling out of Madryn Street. He rode past the entrance to Prince's Park, towards his mother's home two miles away in Wavertree. It was close to 7pm on August 20th, 1951, and the sun had not yet set over Liverpool when Thomas turned onto Cranbourne Road. The 24-year-old factory worker dismounted his bike as it rolled to the curb at the pathway outside number seven, a place familiar to him as this was where he was raised. The narrow residential street was lined on either side with identical terraced houses with large bay windows. Jack Grossman, who lived next door in number nine, greeted Thomas and told him that the half pint of milk on his mother's doorstep had been sitting there curdling in the heat since morning. Thomas acknowledged what the neighbour said as he approached the wooden panelled front door. He extended his arm and pressed the doorbell three times in quick succession, waiting for his widowed mother Beatrice Alice Rimmer to let him inside. He didn't hear the faint taps of her shoes as she came to the door to greet him, or the usual click of the latch before his mother swung open the door. This was most unusual. Beatrice knew her son was visiting. Without any sign of movement through the blind on the front door, Thomas lifted the flap of the letterbox to peer inside the home. There was nothing in his direct line of sight. It was difficult to see every angle as Thomas looked through the small rectangular hole, but he managed to fix his gaze on the floor. A few feet from the entryway, he focused on his mother, lying in the hallway. In the time that he watched her, there was no sound from inside the home, 
and she didn't appear to move an inch. There was no reply to her son's panicked response. Thomas turned around, grabbing his bike with urgency. He momentarily paused, only to tell the neighbour that something was wrong. He didn't have time to elaborate as he pedalled down to the end of Cranbourne Road and turned into a back passage between the houses. Thomas hoisted himself over the stone wall and into the small back garden, using his bike to steady himself. He would later say, I noticed that a pane of glass in the kitchen window was broken. I tried the back door leading from the yard, but it appeared to be bolted. I broke more glass from the hole in the window and climbed through. Thomas rushed into the hallway. The familiar checkered tiles lined the walls, but the carpet runner was saturated. He soon realised it was his mother's blood. As a former police constable, Thomas had some basic first aid training, and when he failed to find a pulse on his mother's wrist, he opened the front door and called for neighbour Jack Grossman to phone the police. Constables Robert Evans and Stanley Wright arrived on Cranbourne Road around ten minutes later, and after confirming Mrs. Rimmer was dead, they called for senior officers. It was obvious from the outset that she had been murdered. Fifty-four-year-old Beatrice Alice Rimmer had lived at the house on Cranbourne Road for almost thirty years. Her husband, Thomas Woozy Rimmer, had died just a year earlier, after suddenly collapsing in their back garden. Thomas had worked as an audit clerk for a tobacco manufacturer, and in his will, along with his pension, he left his widow an estate totalling over £1,100, the equivalent of over £40,000 today. Mrs. Rimmer, who chose to be referred to as Alice, was described by some neighbours as being a semi-recluse. A neighbour two doors down, Mr. Baker, remarked, Although she went out most days, it was always alone, and she never returned with anyone. She never discussed her business with anyone as far as I'm aware. Alice had a soft spot for the baker's dog, Rover, most days he would wander into her garden and wait for her to let him inside. Rover was among the very few guests welcomed inside the immaculately kept house. After the dog enjoyed some treats, Alice would send Rover back home. In spite of her neighbours' beliefs, Alice did have some social hobbies. She attended meetings with the Dovedale Ladies Bowling Club at Wavertree Playground, but couldn't be convinced to go to club outings with the other members. Mrs Liggett, the secretary of the bowling club, told the Liverpool Echo that Alice hadn't been in good health for the previous two seasons, so she hadn't played as much as she used to. Another pleasure was card games which Alice played when meeting other players at Sefton Park Conservative Club a few times a week. One of the women who played cards with Alice told the Echo, It has been said Mrs Rimmer was a recluse and never went out at night, but this is far from being the truth. She went out to a whist drive most nights. She seemed happy and jolly when I saw her on Saturday. Following the sudden death of her husband, Alice Rimmer spent every Sunday afternoon with her son Thomas and his wife Marion. She frequently encouraged her boy to rejoin the police force. Sunday, August 19th was no different, and after having dinner together and playing cards, Thomas accompanied his mother to the bus stop at the junction of Prince's Avenue and Granby Street. With the strap of her umbrella looped around her right wrist and a bunch of flowers in her other hand, Alice boarded the number 27 bus at around 9.45pm. 
the bus driver Henry Francis Bentley recalled seeing a woman he described as middle-aged and well-built, wearing a brown straw hat and brown coat, board the bus at that stop. She disembarked around five minutes later at the junction between Lodge Lane and Smith Down Road. Depending on the weather, Alice usually took the tram from Smith Down Road or walked the ten-minute journey back to her home. After Beatrice Alice Rimmer was found dead, senior officers who worked in the Liverpool City Police Force attended the scene. When discovered in the hallway, Alice was lying in an awkward position. A brown straw hat that she had been wearing earlier appeared to have fallen off, perhaps in a struggle. Without it covering her head, A number of open wounds on the left side of her scalp were visible through her hair, which was matted with blood. It seemed as if most of the blood loss came from these wounds, and clumps of hair were found in the pool of blood beneath her head. The yellow floral Sunday best dress she wore when she visited her son had bunched above her knees, indicating she had struggled on the floor. She couldn't get far as her foot was caught on a wooden chair next to the front door. It was obvious that Alice had been killed almost immediately after arriving home from her son's. The umbrella was still wrapped around her wrist, and the bouquet of flowers was wilting in the plastic sheeting they were wrapped in. Next to her closed right fist was a small leather key purse containing the front door key and her handbag which was undisturbed. Once pristinely white, her net gloves were soaked with blood and clung tightly to a visible wound on the back of her right hand. There were also cuts on the back of her brown coat. A window pane at the back of the property had been broken just above the catch. Thomas Rimmer said he had climbed in through the window after removing some of the larger shards of glass with a piece of brick he found outside. Either the perpetrator was lying in wait for Alice to return, or they barged in when she opened her front door. It was unclear. Looking around his mother's home, Thomas didn't notice anything missing which made it more likely that whoever attacked his mother had done so as soon as she entered the house. Next-door neighbours didn't hear anything on the night of the 19th, but the blood spatter all over the hallway indicated that it had been a vicious and prolonged assault. No murder weapon was found during preliminary searches of the house. Scenes of crime officers were called along with forensic experts and the pathologist. Dr James B. Firth, director of the Preston Home Office Forensic Science Lab, arrived at the scene shortly before 11pm. He examined the body in situ and collected swabs of blood from the floor and walls. Alice had obvious head injuries there was a considerable amount of blood near her head and on the wall between the front door and the door to the sitting room. The direction of blood spatter on the walls gave the impression that the majority of the blows were inflicted on the victim as she lay on the floor. Small pieces of glass found near the window were also bagged and taken to the lab for analysis. Bolton pathologist Dr Charles Bernard Manning arrived at the scene soon after Dr Firth. Beatrice Alice Rimmer's body was removed to the city mortuary at 1am, where Dr Manning conducted a post-mortem in the presence of Dr Firth, who collected anything of evidentiary value. Dr Manning logged that there were more than 15 wounds on the victim's scalp, predominantly concentrated on the left side of her head, including a tear to her left earlobe. A two-inch area of her skull was exposed near the back of her head. Upon further examination, the pathologist found two skull fractures running perpendicular to each other, one up from the base of the neck and the other horizontally forming a T-shape. 
Alice had suffered a subdural cerebral hemorrhage believed to have been inflicted by a light weapon swung with such force that it perforated her skin but did not pierce the bone. Shallow wounds of varied shapes were also noted. Some were straight or curved, and some unusually were star-shaped. Heavy bruising on Alice's right arm and hand suggested that she had held it above her head to try and protect herself from the 20-plus blows inflicted on her body. Her right index finger was fractured, and below it was an irregular-shaped wound that measured three-quarters of an inch in length. There were three angular cuts between her shoulder blades, consistent with the tears seen in her brown coat and yellow dress. Similar damage was found to her straw hat, which had an uneven hole on the left side that corresponded to the injuries on the victim's head. All of the blood found at the scene was confirmed to be Group A, which was matched to Alice's blood type. The loose hair that was found next to her head was hers, and appeared to have been severed from her head with a sharp weapon, not pulled out in a struggle. Dr. Manning concluded that Beatrice Alice Rimmer's cause of death was due to brain hemorrhage, shock and skull fractures following repeated blows to the head with one or more weapons. Aside from the broken window, there were no signs of any disturbance in the rear living area or the kitchen. Thomas Rimmer couldn't recall if the rear door into the kitchen was locked when he arrived. In a state of panic, he had entered by clambering through the broken window, but the first officers to arrive at the scene were able to gain entry through the back door. Superintendent Hector Taylor took charge of the CID team assigned to the case, while his superior, Superintendent Herbert Barmer, was on holiday in Ireland. According to the pathologist Beatrice, Alice Rimmer's death had not been immediate, and he believed that she had died around 2am on August 20th, having been attacked at around 10pm the night before. She had clung to life alone for four hours before she passed away from her injuries. All available officers were dispatched to search the area in squad cars. Shining torches out of the window as they cruised along Smith Down Road, they scoured the cemetery and nearby sites that had been blitzed in the war, looking for anything that could be linked with the murder. Inquiries were made at local railway stations, docks and roads leading out of the city. It was the largest murder investigation in two years, since a manager and his assistant were gunned down in the Cameo Cinema one street away from Alice's home. The victim's neighbours Lillian Cornforth and Mr Baker both said they hadn't heard anything suspicious. Mr Baker's second dog Skip, who usually barked at everything, hadn't barked in the last 24 hours. As forensic experts continued to dust the house for prints, Superintendent Taylor appealed to the public and asked anyone who had visited the house in the past three months to get in touch, so they could be eliminated from the inquiry. Checks were made with all local dry cleaners on the chance that the killer had handed in bloodstained clothing. It was believed that whoever committed the murder would have been considerably bloody in the aftermath. The street was sealed off while uniformed officers from Liverpool City Police conducted doorstep interviews with neighbours and searched gardens for potential murder weapons. Some neighbours thought it was likely that Alice kept cash in the house as she was widowed and didn't work. CID detectives inquired at Merseyside-approved schools and remand homes to see if anyone had absconded in the past few days. Voicing the challenges the investigation faced, Superintendent Taylor remarked, We have no idea what the man we are looking for is like, or what sort of weapon to look for. The window at the rear of the house was only wide enough for someone with a slim build to climb through, 
Superintendent Taylor continued, While we do not rule out that the crime might have been committed by a woman, we think it more likely that only a man could have used such force with what we believe was only a light weapon, probably a stick or a large hand torch. Beatrice Alice Rimmer's funeral was held at Hallerton Cemetery Chapel on August 24, 1951. Hundreds of women kept vigil as they lined the pavements along Cranbourne and Smithdown Road on the rainy Friday afternoon. The chapel service led by Reverend Alan Kemp was packed and over 100 people waited at the graveside for the funeral cortege. Alongside the police and Alice's son, the victim's brother had travelled from Newcastle after reading of his sister's death. They hadn't spoken in four years, and he was shocked to hear of her murder. The investigation was galvanised by the return of the head of Liverpool CID Superintendent Herbert Barmer the following week and detectives continued to work on the theory that an intruder had killed Beatrice Alice Rimmer. The drawers and cupboards were closed, which didn't suggest a burglar had ransacked the house, but a peculiar discovery was made in the kitchen. Three sweet wrappers were found, one on the table and two on the floor next to it. They appeared to be freshly discarded and were from different manufacturers, including Santa Super Sweets and Taverner Rutledge. Superintendent Barmer remarked, It is a significant fact that Mrs. Rimmer was known to be scrupulously clean and not the type to discard caramel papers in her home. We believe that the sweets were eaten by the intruders inside the house and that they had made an entry just before Mrs. Rimmer reached her front door. No one could have had time to eat two sweets, and in any case, the house was not upset or disturbed in any way. Confectionery stores in the Wavertree area and across the city were canvassed to see if anyone had specifically requested those types of sweets together, as they were usually sold in different bags. Tests were still ongoing at the Northwestern Forensic Science Laboratory to try and ascertain exactly what kind of weapon was used in the murder. Investigators began looking through records of similar break-ins to try and find a link. In the weekends preceding the murder, several houses in Liverpool were burgled by someone who broke the right-hand pane of glass in the lower sash of a rear window. Enough glass had been removed each time to allow someone to climb inside. On the evening of August 4th, a house on Harvey Street had been broken into, and a piece of coal was used to chip away the glass remnants from the frame. Over 200 cigarettes, a waterman fountain ballpoint pen and one pound eight shillings in cash were taken from the house. One week later, a property on Alderson Road near Smithdown Road had been broken into in the same fashion. The distinct sound of glass breaking was heard at around 11.45pm on August 11th, and when the homeowner Edna Conway returned, she found that someone had eaten a tin of salmon and opened tins of fruit. The coin meter under the stairs had been emptied, as had a trunk that contained nickel-plated knives and a sugar basin, along with a cream jug and a pawn ticket. An axe that was kept downstairs was later found beneath the duvet in the bedroom, and it was believed to have been carried as a weapon by the intruder in case they were interrupted. Edna Conway's coat, described as being two years old, navy-coloured and double-breasted with pointed lapels, was also absent. The coat was unique as it had been dyed, leaving a greenish tinge to the half-length lining inside. Superintendent Barmer said, It seems very likely that someone has come into possession of the coat and I appeal most earnestly to anyone who thinks they have it to come forward immediately. 
Three days later, on August 14th, the items from the Alderson Road break-in were discovered inside an oven in a disused bakery on Spothforth Road. On August 16th, several days before Beatrice Alice Rimmer was killed, there were reports that two teenage boys were seen attempting to climb the wooden gate leading to the premises. Before they climbed over, other children nearby shouted to them that the police were inside, and the teenagers ran off. One was described as being five feet six inches tall with a medium frame and straight dark hair. He had been wearing a dark blue jacket, black plimsolls, and grey flannel trousers tucked into the top of his socks. The second boy was said to be a bit shorter at five feet four inches and wore a lumber jacket with dark coloured trousers. Believing the teenagers could have been responsible for the fatal break-in, detectives questioned hundreds of youths at local schools during the first week of September. Superintendent Barmer said, We want to see every schoolboy. All school children will be interviewed in an endeavour to trace the two 15-year-old boys we wish to interview. A few days later, Barmer ordered that every street grid and gully along Cranbourne Road be searched for the murder weapon. Liverpool Corporation suction pumps were used to clear the gullies and flush out any debris to awaiting investigators. A 10-inch knife with a yellow handle that was stained black from use was discovered, and although it didn't look like it had been in the drains for long, no evidence led investigators to believe it was the murder weapon. Superintendent Barmer revealed more information to the public. The police believed that Alice had been attacked with multiple weapons as soon as she entered her house on August 19th. Barmer stated, Mrs. Rimmer was known to be terribly scared of burglars, and on entering her home after darkness, she was known to rush along the lobby immediately after she got the front door open to switch on the electric light. She never reached the light switch, according to Barmer. Mrs. Rimmer was struck down at once. There is no doubt that her assailants had rained blow after blow upon her, and from the nature of the wounds, we are of the opinion that there was more than one attacker. The investigation seemed to slow down until the police announced that they were looking for a red-haired man who went by the nickname Ginge, who was known to wear an army battle dress with RAOC on the shoulder. He stood for Royal Army Ordnance Corps. Ginge, who was believed to also go by the name Frederick or Arthur Dutton, usually slept rough in an old car on Wasteland near the number 14 tram route. He was often seen at cafes and public houses near Paddington performing his party trick of blowing smoke rings. More than 5,000 people had been interviewed by the end of September when it was announced that Liverpool CID were being assisted by the Manchester police. The young boys seen near the bakery had been traced and eliminated from the murder investigation. October brought a breakthrough. It was announced that there had finally been an arrest. 22-year-old Edward Francis Devlin, known to friends and family as Teddy, was taken into custody by D.C. Lynch and D.S. Skinner from Liverpool and Manchester CID as he entered a milk bar on Stratford Road in Manchester just after 8pm on October 10th. The arrest was made following a 72-hour operation between the police forces across a three-mile radius in Manchester. According to official sources, a prisoner had provided information to Liverpool CID about the murder. After consulting with Manchester police, the investigators were told about two young men who were said to have been in Liverpool at the time the crime was committed.
Edward Francis Devlin was one of six children born and raised on Leinster Street in Swinton, Manchester by his widowed mother Amy, following the sudden death of his father in 1943. A Catholic school student, Devlin never completed his education and instead began committing petty thefts in his early teens. He had many run-ins with the law, and three convictions for larceny by the time he reached adulthood. At the age of 20, he had been sentenced to six months in prison for stealing tomatoes. Between his short stints in remand times, Devlin had served in the army for two years between 1947 and 1949. He left receiving an honourable discharge. In early August, Devlin had skipped bail and was hiding out from the local police until he was located during a raid on a house on Cornbrook Street with a friend, 21-year-old Alfred Burns. Burns and Devlin had known each other for years and had similar backgrounds, each being raised in a large family by a widowed mother in post-war Manchester. Like Devlin, Alfred Burns had a number of minor convictions as a juvenile and had been sent to a Borstal twice, but while on leave in July 1951, he had absconded. The young men were taken in for questioning concerning several offences committed in the area while they were on the run, and Burns had claimed that they couldn't have been responsible as they were in Liverpool at the time. Devlin had been released after a short stay in Strangeways Prison, but just a few days later he was arrested. According to the police, Devlin was immediately told that he was being taken into custody in connection with the murder of Beatrice Alice Rimmer in Liverpool on August 19th. He allegedly replied, I don't know anything about it. I never heard of the murder. The following day, he appeared at Liverpool Magistrates Court before Mr. Arthur McFarland and was charged with murder. Wearing a beige-coloured shirt with an open tartan collar and brown trousers, Devlin pushed back his auburn hair before telling the magistrates, If I can have someone get to Manchester, I can prove I was in Manchester at the time. He was remanded into custody pending a committal hearing. Later that same day, Alfred Burns was arrested at Strangeways Prison, where he was being kept until he was due to return to a borstal. Burns was brought before the magistrates the next day and charged with the same crime. His naturally wavy fair hair was styled in the typical 50s fashion, and he looked respectable wearing a matching blue suit and shirt for the hearing. Before being remanded into custody, he told the court, All I can say is I did not know there had been a murder in Liverpool until yesterday. One week later, on October 18th, both men again appeared at Liverpool magistrates alongside their counsel as the matter had been referred to the Director of Public Prosecutions. The defendants would continue to be held on remand. Joseph Norton, representing Burns, told the court, I cannot at this stage object to the remand, but in fairness to the accused, I want to say he vehemently denies any complicity in this charge. He protests his innocence as he has done from the very outset. The committal hearing was opened by Mr J.R. Bishop on November 2nd. Outlining the prosecution's case that the accused had been in Liverpool on August 19th and had planned to commit a robbery at the home of Beatrice Alice Rimmer, Mr Bishop said that witnesses would be referring to the victim by a typically derogatory descriptor. You will hear this woman described in evidence by some witnesses as an old woman. Bishop continued... The pathologist describes her as an obese female between 50 and 60 years of age. You may think that from the angle of 21 or 22, such a woman may be described as an old woman. 
the court heard that Devlin and Burns had spoken to several people about planning the robbery and that multiple witnesses had seen them in Liverpool over the weekend of August 17th to 19th. Barristers for the defendants, Harry Livermore for Devlin and Joseph Norton for Burns, complained that they felt the magistrate Alderman Gordon was being unfair by upholding prosecution objections during their cross-examination of the witnesses. The magistrate had told the witnesses not to speak to anyone about the case, including the defence, and refused to have the record reflect his rulings in which he did not allow barristers for the defence to learn the witnesses' addresses. The defence contended that they would raise protest elsewhere as it was within the law for them to interview witnesses. Witness identifications and statements were a point of further contention when the defence alleged that the statements made by the accused following their arrests were written by Superintendent Barmer and Inspector Lees while the defendants were asked leading questions. Despite their protests... Alfred Burns and Edward Devlin were committed for trial at an assize in Liverpool. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. The trial began at St George's Hall in Liverpool on February 12, 1952, less than a week after Queen Elizabeth II ascended to the throne. Proceedings had been temporarily delayed when the presiding judge, Mr Justice Finnemore, developed a flu-like virus that left him bedbound. Opening the case for the Crown, 
Basil Neild QC described how Beatrice Alice Rimmer's body had been discovered by her only child on August 20th of the previous year. Referring to her injuries including 15 wounds to her head alone, he spoke about her broken finger and the cut on her hand when she had tried to ward off the blows mercilessly rained upon her. The prosecutor continued, It was established that some of the wounds had been inflicted as she lay on the floor, and she took three or four hours to die. Basil Neild QC told the court that Edward Devlin was alleged to have met a man named George McLaughlin, a 19-year-old Liverpool native, at Bill's all-night cafe in Paddington in late July 1951. McLaughlin, a career criminal from the age of nine with over 40 convictions before his 20th birthday, had been brought from prison to testify. He said that he and Devlin were having a conversation when he told Devlin about his plans to rob his aunt's home at 109 Cranbourne Road while she was away on holiday. Devlin allegedly replied that it was funny because he had a job planned for that road too. According to McLaughlin, he said he was comfortable disclosing his plans to a stranger because most people in all-night cafes were crooks. Devlin disclosed that an old woman was living alone in number seven. She seldom received visitors. Devlin claimed the woman kept a lot of dough in the house and that he would put her on a bed and see to her if she started messing about. McLaughlin testified that he and Devlin went to Cranbourne Road the following morning, despite giving evidence at an earlier hearing that they had gone at night when it was dark. He claimed to have given Devlin a leg over the wall so they could case the job, and he saw a privet bush in the garden. They arranged to carry out the break-in later. According to the prosecution, Edward Devlin had met a 22-year-old former showgirl named June Berry in Manchester during Whitsuntide in May 1951. June, a Manchester native, told the court that she and Devlin spent a week together before she moved to Liverpool. After the move, June started a relationship with a man named Stanley Rubin, and he would often stay with her at a lodging house on Canning Street. At the beginning of August, she was surprised to see Devlin outside her home and happily agreed to go with him to a pub near the market called The Dive. June claimed that it was in The Dive that she was introduced to Alfred Burns and after closing time they made their way to several all-night cafes before ending up in the Continental Cafe at around 4.30am. According to June, Devlin and Burns met George McLaughlin and had a conversation about an old woman's house with a back entry that could be reached by climbing over a wall. McLaughlin told the court, We were going to get one of the girls round the front to keep the old woman chatting. While she was at the front talking, we were going to get round the back. I was going to give Devlin and Burns a leg over the wall and they were going to force the catch over the window, get through the window, and open the door for the other one to get through and charge to the front of the house and grab hold of the old woman. McLaughlin said that they arranged to carry out the break-in on August 17th after meeting at the Golden Dragon Cafe, but he couldn't do it because he had been arrested for robbing his aunt's home and had been in prison since. The night after she met George McLaughlin, August 3rd, June Berry accompanied Edward Devlin and Alfred Burns to the Rainbow Cafe, where June introduced the men to 17-year-old Marie Mill. In the early hours of the morning, the group went to Canning Street so June could pack a bag to stay with Devlin. However, when she and Marie entered her room in the lodging house, she found her on-and-off boyfriend Stanley Rubin asleep in her bed. June grabbed a suitcase and told Rubin she was leaving, 
but he followed her and Marie outside to the corner of Catherine Street, where he realised she was with two men he hadn't seen before. Rubin told June to decide whether she was going to stay with him or leave with one of the men. Stanley Rubin later testified that June told him she was choosing Teddy, referring to Edward Devlin by his nickname. Devlin Burns, June and Marie then went to Central Station to store June's suitcase while they looked for somewhere to stay. Burns was able to get a room for himself and Marie at a boarding house on Verulam Close, and Devlin and June stayed at a nearby hotel called Mount Pleasant. The following day, when Burns and Devlin wanted to go home to get a change of clothes, they all took the train from Liverpool to Manchester. According to June and Marie, the men discussed their plans to break into an old woman's house and asked each of them to keep watch while they went inside. June said she saw Devlin brandishing a glass cutter, similar to one found at his mother's house after Devlin's arrest. Both women denied that they had agreed to help, and Marie claimed they returned to Liverpool later that night. She had arranged to meet with Burns and Devlin at the Rialto Cinema on August 17th at 4.30pm. June claimed to have seen the pair twice before then, once on the 8th or 9th of August when Burns and Devlin came to the boarding house on Verulam Close, by which point she said that Marie had left. June told them that she was due in court at 10am that morning and she didn't want to go, so she asked if she could go back to Manchester with them and she stayed with her mother who lived there. According to June, she saw them again on August 16th when they told her they had to go to Liverpool for important business. Seventeen-year-old Marie Milne was one of over a dozen children in an Indonesian-English household. She told the court that on the evening she met Alfred Burns and Edward Devlin. It was the first time she had stayed out all night and it was the night she lost her virginity. Marie claimed that Burns had introduced himself as Freddie Rimmer, and she only discovered his actual name a few days later when June told her. After that, she said she didn't want to see him again, and that was why she left the boarding house. However, Marie said it was a coincidence that she bumped into Burns and Devlin again on August 17th at the Rialto Cinema. She then agreed to go for something to eat with them at the Golden Dragon Cafe. There, she alleged that Devlin, who had ordered sausages and chips, complained about the quality of the knives and took out his own red-handled spring blade to cut his dinner. Prosecutor Basil Neald, QC, told the court, After the meal, Marie and the prisoners discussed the job to be done at Seven Cranbourne Road. Burns asked Marie if she had been on a job before, and she said no. Marie Milne had testified at an earlier hearing that Devlin then threatened her with the knife as they walked to Central Station, but at the trial she said he had threatened her in the Golden Dragon Cafe. When confronted with this inconsistency, she said that it had happened twice. According to the witness, she eventually agreed to go with Burns and Devlin, and they explained what her role would be. Testifying about what she was told to do and Devlin's orders, Marie stated, They said that all I had to do was knock on the door and say my mother sent me. Then I was to keep the woman talking while he got in the back way. He said it would be on the following night and that, with it being a Sunday, The woman might be out. He said I was to try and get invited into the house, and if I got into the house, I had to follow her and be behind the door so that I would be between her and the door. He described the inside of the house and said there were two mirrors in the kitchen and one on top of the sideboard. He said that Mrs. Rimmer always sat in the big chair by the fire. 
Another witness named Kenneth McNeil claimed he saw Devlin, Burns and Marie in a public house later that night. Marie confirmed that she recognised McNeil, who was known to wear a navy blouse. Marie said that the three of them went to the dive the following day, where they were seen by June's ex-boyfriend Stanley Rubin, who testified that he exchanged words with Devlin about June. On Sunday, August 19th, Marie said that she met Burns and Devlin at the Rialto at around 2.30pm and they got a taxi to a blitz site near the hospital on Smith Down Road. She specifically remembered that Burns had given the driver £2 and 6 shillings to cover the £2 fare. The taxi driver James Emery recalled Marie but did not recognise the defendants. Emery also admitted that he was only sure that he had driven her to Smith Down Road on the 19th, as that was the date police had questioned him about. After going through the plan with Marie once more, Burns and Devlin gave her some money and told her to go and watch a motion picture, and to meet them back at the Blitz site on Smith Down Road at 6pm. Marie claimed that she was too afraid to go against the pair's orders, even though she admitted they did not know where she lived, and waited on Smith Down Road from 6pm until 7.30pm, but Burns and Devlin didn't show up. She went back to the Rialto where Burns and Devlin happened to be, and asked them why they didn't turn up. They told her they didn't need her on the job anymore, but when she complained that she could have stayed to watch the end of the movie, They said she could come with them. At around 9pm, they returned to the top of Cranbourne Road. Marie's testimony continued. Burns told me to wait on the corner of Cranbourne Road for five minutes so they could get in a back way. I was told to go to the house four houses past the entry, number seven. The last I saw of them at that time was when they turned up at Webster Road. I waited on the corner until 10.30pm. I did not go back to the house. Marie said she got the bus back to the Rialto and saw Burns and Devlin across the road. She asked them if they had done the job, and they said no, but as they walked along Upper Parliament Street, she noticed a stained handkerchief wrapped around Devlin's hand and wet stains on his suit. Marie claimed she heard him whisper, Will the woman live? According to Marie, Burns replied, No, to hell with the woman. We will be out of Liverpool before long. We will take the little Marie, the bitch, with us. Continuing her evidence, Marie explained she heard Devlin complain about mud on his shoes and losing his knife after going through the park. When she asked him about the stains on his suit, he told her to mind her own fucking business and said it was beer. The jury heard that Burns had been wearing a brown pinstripe suit and Devlin had been wearing a fawn-coloured gabardine suit, both of which had been submitted to the forensic lab for analysis. Dr. Firth, the director of the Home Office Forensic Science Laboratory, testified that he examined both suits and shoes belonging to the defendants. The expert witness said there were visible blood stains on Devlin's jacket, small stains on the front left under the lapel, and some on the left sleeve. Dr. Firth believed it was human blood, but there was not enough to sample it for grouping the clothing appeared to have been washed. Testimony from a manager at a Manchester dry cleaners alleged that a fawn suit with a receipt made out to someone named Devlin had been handed in on August 23rd and that the jacket appeared to be cleaner than the trousers. Bloodstains were noted on Burns' pinstripe suit trousers, but the stains big enough to analyse came back as being Group B Burns' blood type, 
not Taipei like Beatrice Alice Rimmer. The court was informed that prosecution witness George McLaughlin was interviewed in prison on September 20th. He eventually provided information that led detectives to June Berry. June was questioned on October 4th, and Marie Milne was questioned three days later. Their initial statements were vastly different from the evidence they gave in court. However, officers involved in the investigation denied making any suggestions to them during the interviews. Detective Leslie Skinner testified about Edward Devlin's arrest, telling the court that Devlin had been immediately informed of why he was being taken into custody. As they transported him back to Liverpool in the back of a police vehicle, Devlin suddenly asked, Have you seen the girls? June and the Chinese bit. What did they say? The prosecutor told the jury having seen Marie Milne, who was half Indonesian, they would know that was an apparent reference to her. A statement alleged to have been dictated by Devlin to Inspector Lee's at Hallerton Police Station was then read to the court. Devlin had said that he and Alfred Burns had not been in Liverpool since the 8th or 9th of August, and the last time he saw Marie was on the 5th or 6th of August when they dropped her at the station in Manchester. Burns's statement the following day contained the same information, that they had not been to Liverpool since the 8th or 9th of August, and they could prove they had been in Manchester. Witness George McLaughlin had been brought to an identification parade in mid-October 1951. He positively identified Burns and Devlin as the men he had spoken with when discussing breaking into Beatrice Alice Rimmer's home. Stanley Rubin's June Berry's ex-lover had positively identified Devlin as the man he saw June leaving with. Kenneth McNeil, the witness who was said to have seen the defendants in Liverpool numerous times between the 16th and 20th of August, failed to identify either of them on the stand. He claimed he had been so nervous that he deliberately picked out two random men in the lineup. Aware the majority of the prosecution witnesses were unsavoury characters, Prosecutor Basil Neild QC told the jury... You may think Marie Milne was a willing participant. You may also think that George McLaughlin might have been ready to be one of those who did this act, had he not been arrested before it took place. You may also wonder whether June Berry herself was not in some measure implicated. And therefore, it is proper to say that if any or all of those witnesses in your view were willing participants then it is dangerous to act upon the evidence of accomplices unless it is corroborated by some outside evidence. That said, the prosecutor told jurors they could believe the witnesses without any corroboration at all. After four months of heavy media coverage featuring one side of the case, the accused were finally able to give their account. This is the end of episode 40. The second instalment in this two-part case will be available next week, where you can hear part two in the next few days ad-free on They Walk Among Us Plus, exclusively available on Patreon or Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. And special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.